I'm Carl Halliker. Welcome to Book Chat. And today we're delighted and honored to welcome W.D. Earhart, uh, the author of this collection of essays, The Madness of It All. And in addition, uh, the author of many numerous works. In fact, I've heard you describe Bill as the Vietnam veteran who's written more works, books, poetry, memoirs, nonfiction accounts of the war than anybody else who served. So that's uh, quite an honor for us to have you here. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess I have. I think I may be the most prolific uh, writer to come out of the war, although most people have never. Uh, I keep writing books. Nobody reads them, but I keep writing them. <laughs> well, I mean, people are reading them. I well, know we do him yeah. in the library here, and you're just too modest. But we're delighted to have you here. Uh, Bill, you grew up in nearby Perkesy. Uh, how were your feelings about the Vietnam War affected by growing up in a small town and by attending Penridge High School? Oh, my. Okay, so how much time do we have here? Yeah, that could you just about <laughs> occupy the whole program. You know, when I was growing up I, in the 1950s, I was born in 1948, um, I grew up very much in the shadow of the Second World War. Um, when you're 10 years old, you don't realize it, but the, the fathers of all of my pals were only in their mid-30s late 30s by then. They were only 10 years removed from their own experiences in the Second World War. Um, and, you know, I, a small town like Perkesy, every Memorial Day, you'd have a parade and all these guys who were these men that I knew whose houses I played at and to children I went to school with, you know, they'd all put on their American Legion uniforms and their VFW uniforms and march around and the high school band would get out and play and the fire trucks and you know, you know how that sort of thing works. It was real Norman Rockwell, small town America. Um, I grew up very much steeped in a sense of the, the uh, rightness of America, its role in the world, uh, we were the good guys. Of course, this is also at the, the, the midst of the McCarthy era and the, uh, the height of the Cold War. Uh, the Ruskies were the bad guys and we were the good guys. And I absorbed all of that wholesale. So that by the time I got to high school, um, it never occurred to me. When Lyndon Johnson said, if we do not stop the communists in Vietnam, we will one day have to fight them on the sands of Waikiki. And that to me was a simple flat statement of fact. Everything I had learned up to that point in my life, everything I had seen, everything I had been taught, suggested to me that that was simply true, period. And of course, having grown up in the shadow of the Second World War and watching all of these heroic guys marching around in their VFW uniforms and stuff. Well, here's my chance to be, I can be my own John Wayne. I can be the star of my own John Wayne movie. Of course, I, I grew up watching John Wayne and Audie Murphy and William Holden and all those guys, all these films that were made about the Second World War. Uh, it was, you know, in retrospect, it was a very simplistic view of the world, very black and white, uh, very shallow but it was all that I knew. It is all that my community gave me. Um, I don't think that those people lied to me. I think they believed that's how the world looked. Uh, but it was an enormous shock, to put it mildly, when I 
found myself in the midst of the Vietnam War having voluntarily put me myself there and things didn't, didn't, didn't add up the way they were supposed to. Um, that was a profound shock to me because there was very little in my upbringing that prepared me for the complexities and the realities of the world beyond Perkasie, Pennsylvania. And, and you went into, you enlisted right after high school. Yeah, you? in fact, I actually signed the papers about two months before I graduated um, and went off you know, to active duty nine days after my graduation. Uh, that was the summer of 1966. I went through about seven months of training of various kinds and ended up in Vietnam at, uh, in early February 1967. And I was actually 17 when I enlisted. My parents had to sign the, the enlistment papers because I wasn't legally an adult yet. Um, and of course, my parents weren't all that keen about this, but their objections to my going into the Marines had nothing to do with any moral problems with the Vietnam War. Uh, they're just looking at a kid who has been accepted at four colleges and now, what mother wants their kid to join the Marines and go off to a war when they can go to college instead? Mm -hmm. But what finally persuaded them, and I, I, my mother told me this years later, I had not remembered this particular piece of it. We had a very heated discussion in late March of 1966, and that I do remember, but she said that it, the discussion ended when I finally said to her, is this the way you raised me? to let other mothers' sons fight America's wars. And she said that that stopped her in her tracks, that no, that wasn't how she'd raised me, and if this was what I was gonna do, then how could she say no? And that's again, is a reflection of, you know, she had the same fundamental beliefs that I had, that's where I got them. If the government says we need you, well, they must be telling the truth. That's what people thought. And which one of your books uh, details your experiences in the service? Uh, the, the first uh, memoir, Vietnam Percocy, uh, actually talks about why I went in and deals with the 13 months I spent in Vietnam and a couple of months after I got home. And then there's a second book called Passing Time, which covers a five-year period roughly between the fall of 1969 and the uh, spring of 1974, which was really what I call my sense-making period. It's, it's, I came back from Vietnam not having any idea what the heck hit me. It just, all I knew was nothing made sense. By all of the standards and measures I had been given to understand the world, nothing made sense. And I tried for several years to basically to just forget it, forget it, it's over. I don't know what the hell happened back there, but you know, I'm out of it, I survived, it's not my problem anymore. Well, meanwhile, I'm engaged in staggeringly self-destructive behavior, the most visible manifestation of which was drinking heavily and driving. Um, but finally, in the, in the spring of my uh, freshman year of college, after I got out of the Marines and went to college, I realized that somehow I had brought the war home with me and that I needed to make sense of it. And, and the second book, Passing Time, deals with that long struggle to understand 
what happened to me, to my country. Um, and then there's a third book called Busted, which deals with the period of March to September 1974. Bill, you were telling us about some of your books, autobiographical memoirs, and you were also talking about the book Busted. Yeah, well, the third, the third book, there were three books in this series of memoirs. And the third one is Busted. It deals with the period from March of 74 to uh, September of 74. And it, it details the, the legal difficulties of both myself and President Richard Nixon. Um, and he's, although he doesn't actually appear in this story, he's a major character. He runs all the way through this thing. Um, but the funny part about all that is that the University of Massachusetts marketed these three books as a trilogy which sounds very fancy, but if actually if I'd have known how to write, there'd only be one book. Um, I had written poetry for 15 years before I tackled prose, and uh, I simply didn't know what to do with that kind of material. I mean, you know, for me, a long piece of writing was more than a single page of poetry, and, and suddenly I'm dealing with hundreds and hundreds of pages, and I just Vietnam Percocy was a failed attempt to write what I wanted to write. Then I went back and tried again um, and came up with Passing Time. However, the way that the, what was the reasonable ending point, my, the end of my career as a merchant seaman, uh, I didn't want to write about at that particular point. By this time, I'm writing in 1985, 1986. Uh, Ronald Reagan was president. Nancy Reagan was telling everybody to just say no. And so I just wanted to leave that whole incident alone. And then six, seven years later, I realized that nobody was paying any attention to what I was writing anyway, so I could say whatever I wanted. So I busted is really the tail end of the story. So if I'd have known what I was doing from the start, there'd only be one book. Well, they're all very fascinating, and uh, we're glad to have uh, all three at the library. Uh, in one of your essays in a book called The Hell With It All, you say in every war, this is a quote from you, we demonize the enemy so we can go on living with ourselves. How does this apply to you in Vietnam, and how does it apply to the war in Iraq and the war on terrorism now? Well, there seems to be um, a, an almost biological prohibition against killing. Um, in order for most people to kill another person, especially if it's not an act of passionate anger, you have to convince yourself that they're not real people. Because otherwise, you don't want to do that. Um, they've even, you know, they did studies uh, of combat soldiers in the Korean War. And the average infant, army infantryman in the Korean War, uh, in, in, an, in an average rifle company, 10 to 12% of the riflemen actually fired their weapons in combat. This is in battle, taking fire. The Marine Corps, because we get much better training, our average rate of fire was 15 to 18%. Even well-trained soldiers don't really want to shoot their weapons at other human beings. Um, there are a lot of ways in which we 
in, in which military organizations try to overcome what seems to be a natural inhibition against killing. Uh, one of them is to create a situation where you can, you can tell yourself that you're not really killing people. They're not really like us. They're different from us. Um, I just heard somebody on, on a program the other day talking about these uh, Muslim fundamentalists, uh, how they, they don't really care about life the way we do. Well, that's the same thing they were saying about Japanese soldiers in the Second World War. I suspect it's the same thing they were saying about Filipinos in the Philippine War in 1899. Um, there is a, a whole national propaganda apparatus, and we don't like that word in this country, but it's what it is when, when you get whole news organizations and bureaucracies and governments referring to um, certain people and certain things. I mean, we now talk about the terrorists, the terrorists, the terrorists this, the terrorists that. We can write them off. It's just like writing about, talking about the communists. That's what I grew up with. Well, you're communist. Well, as soon as that word communist hits the air, boom, we don't, we can dismiss them now because they aren't like us. They're not really people. At a personal level, at Paris Island, we learn to march. That's mostly what you do at boot camp, is you learn to do close order drill. And as we marched along, our drill instructors had us chanting, I want to go to Vietnam, I want to kill a Viet Cong with a gun or with a knife, either way will be just fine. Things like that. Um, we called the Vietnamese gooks, slopes, dinks, rice-propelled zipper heads. Anything to make them not be people. And of course, they were all communists. So it's okay to kill them. In fact, we really have to kill them because if we don't kill them, they're going to come and rape our mothers and steal our refrigerators. Um, you see a very similar kind of thing unfolding now. We, we are, um, the violence that's being directed against American soldiers in Iraq you know, our soldiers are there to try to bring democracy and freedom to the Iraqi people. Those who are resisting us are terrorists. Um, they're Ba'athists. They're um, fanatics. They hate freedom. No, they're not like us. So it's okay for us to kill them. Um, one can go back and study the history of warfare and the history of language and find this phenomenon occurring consistently throughout all of human history. The world is always divided between us and them. And whether us is the little family in, inside the cave and them are the ones outside trying to get into that cave, or whether us is the United States and them is those where they're Nazis or communists or now, you know, said the latest is terrorists. Um, that is how we make it possible to find, you know, to find glory and glamour in killing other human beings. Bill, in the book, you talk about how motion pictures portray the Vietnam War. How do they in general? Well, I, um, as you know, I'm, I'm, teaching now at the Haverford School, and I regularly remind 
my students that if Hollywood were in the business of education, we wouldn't be sitting there at the Hereford School. We'd all be over at King of Prussia Mall eating popcorn and getting an education. Um, the thing to remember is that Hollywood is in the business of entertaining us. Um, movies are entertainment. And certain things have to be done to make movies entertaining. Even movies we don't think of initially as entertainment really are. Um, let's look at a movie like, uh, say, Platoon, Oliver Stone's very famous movie about the Vietnam War. Um, it has a gorgeous, swelling soundtrack that rises and falls as the occasion requires. Well, my war didn't have a soundtrack. It's got the good sergeant and the bad sergeant. There's allegory in, in, in the movie. It's, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. When the, when the good sergeant dies, he, he lies on the ground like the crucified Christ. I mean, there's all of this artful stuff that goes on. Um, that's not what happens in a war. And it, and it lasts 20 minutes. Well, no, two hours, I guess. It was about two hours. My war lasted 13 months. Um, Nobody dies in the movie Platoon. You know, all those people you think died didn't really die. They're actors. They, as soon as the camera stopped, they got up and went away. Um, what, what we're being is manipulated <clears throat> and, and manipulated in ways that uh, the director wants, you know, wants to make us go. This is true of virtually any movie. Um, I don't think there are any good movies done about the Vietnam War. Um, the problem is that we go to the movies and they are so convincing. I mean, a movie like Platoon is so compelling. You come out of there and you really feel like that's, that must have been what it was like. Well, it wasn't anything like that. Um, I like in movies, uh, war movies, um, even something like Saving Private Ryan, to uh, uh, riding a roller coaster. It's cheap thrills. It gives you the illusion that you're in danger. It gives you the adrenaline rush without anything really happening. You're just watching a you know, two-dimensional screen and eating popcorn, and when it's over, you go home and you talk about, boy, wasn't Charlie Sheen really good in that? Um, the only movie I've ever seen that I think is worth seeing uh, is a movie called Go Tell the Spartans. stars Burt Lancaster, was released in the same summer The Deer Hunter came out. The Deer Hunter made a fortune, collected all sorts of Oscars, and Go Tell the Spartans was an absolute flop. Why was that? Well, Go Tell the Spartans shows the Vietnam War as as something that was forced upon the Vietnamese by a bunch of arrogant, ignorant Americans. And we are not, not the evil people in the movie, but certainly these buffoonish folks who don't know what they're doing and are dragging this country into a war it doesn't want. It's a very bitter, cynical portrayal of the Vietnam War. It also happens to be pretty damned accurate. The movie has its Hollywood elements, but the way in which it presents the war is, is deadly accurate.
Um, whereas in The Deer Hunter, which seems to be such a shocking and real movie, um, well, what underlies that movie? Who are the victims in that movie? Bunch of teenaged American boys. They're the victims. It's an ugly movie and it's an ugly war, but we get to be the victims, not the Vietnamese. We are the victims at the hands of these evil Vietnamese communists who torture our prisoners, uh, make them play Russian roulette. Well, that's a vision of the Vietnam War that Americans are comfortable with, us as victims. Something that the Vietnam War is this thing that happens to us. Whereas the Burt Lancaster movie, the Vietnam War is something we do to them. Um, that's worth seeing if you haven't seen it. Uh, there's another very good movie called uh, uh, the, the 317th Platoon, which is a French movie about the French war in Vietnam, which is a very good, stark uh, movie. But you know, there are other, other movies have some elements that are good and mostly mixed in with a bunch of nonsense. Um, for the most part, you know, we're all going to go to the movies, but when you go to the movies, understand that, that this is not history. This is not education. It's not reality. Why do you think they call it Tinseltown? We go to the movies not to see reality, but to escape reality. So if you want to see, get out, get out some good documentaries, The Year, the year of the Pig, uh, The Anderson Platoon, um, oh, what's the, the World of Charlie Company, um, Hearts and Minds. Look at some of the documentaries on the Vietnam War if you want mm -hmm. to learn about the Vietnam War. But if you're just going to go and buy a ticket and go to a movie theater, understand that's entertainment. And in the end, that's all it is. Fine. Well... Bill, I think we've just about run out of time, so I want to thank you so much. We had a whole bunch of questions we didn't get to, but I really enjoyed what we did do to go in depth about so many things. And, you know, from your own experience, you bring a, a real air of uh, reality to it that most of us, uh, if we uh, have trouble understanding, we should at least learn to appreciate. So thank you so much, Bill, for joining us today. And we have your book, The Madness of It All, and your biographies at the library. I'm Carl Helliker, and this is Book Chat.